Welcome to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more Nakedly Examined Music, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 29 is Chicago's Jason Seed. Jason is a guitarist, largely a jazz player, but with a lot of interest and experience in rock as well as world music, whose projects involve a lot of written composition. You're right now hearing the Jason Seed String Tet, his current group that involves members of the Chicago Symphony, playing for the most part tightly arranged pieces like this one, Invocation, from their 2013 album, In the Gallery. Today we're going to be talking about Ishtar, another track from that same album, and then we'll discuss Any Night Now, a 2015 recording with a more traditional jazz arrangement, and then Mammoth, a track from his previous band, the Jason Seed Elixir Ensemble from their 2008 album, Three, on which he sings and sports a full rhythm section behind both strings and brass. Finally, we'll hear the song Pinch from the Jason Seed String Tet album, The Escapist from 2010. Learn more about Jason at jasonseedmusic.com. Hello, Jason. Hey, how are you? Good. I've been uh, enjoying getting into your catalog here. Uh, thank you so much, man. So I will have played as the introductory song, The Invocation. Yeah, right. The obvious opening song that <laughs> works even just to play the first 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like, am I correct in characterizing your stuff as you started as a guitarist? I saw you in another interview talking about how you developed in guitar and learning more and more styles, but then you also had learned how to write parts for other people, and it seemed like the easiest way, or at least the way that you've settled on in threshing out a full band project is that you've got your part, and then you just write some really, really good supporting string, but often horns and other things play as well, uh-huh. so you can really orchestrate the whole thing. Yeah, the Elixir Ensemble project was like, I just wanted to do everything that I liked in one project. Yeah. All the different kind of styles and stuff. Or whatever, and let it be free to go just absolutely anywhere. And at that time, I was in Milwaukee, and I just kind of had access to a lot of really, really good players. It was just fun. And bringing together classical people and jazz people to kind of gel, because they are fundamentally different in some ways, you know, like they approach rhythm differently. Sure. So getting them all to kind of work together was really a lot of fun. Let's get back to the full combination. We're going to talk about the Elixir Ensemble with our third song, but let's. Start sliding into the first one, which is also from the most recent album in the gallery, 2013, Ishtar. This is a pretty long one, eight minutes long, but this is the one that you had picked that was your favorite. And it certainly got a lot, including a monster upright bass solo to start off with. Do you want to introduce this in terms of what this ensemble is and where these influences are coming from? Sure. The bass intro I wrote for my friend Dan. He plays in the Chicago Symphony. And he's just a ridiculously good bass player. So some of it was like, okay, you know, how far can I push what you can do? You know, can you pull this off? So we kind of worked together on it. It's kind of extreme in what he actually pulls off. But, uh, you know, at the same time, musical, I think. That was literally written just for him. And I thought it made a nice intro to the Eastern European feel of Ishtar. Right. And you were saying that this was one of a number of pieces dedicated to trickster gods i have one another one called loki and picasso's tuxedo there's a couple of videos of that up in different combinations those were friends of mine who were in school at northwestern also just monstrously good musicians they just played the hell out of that loki and another piece goulash rag so ishtar for a while got really into bulgarian wedding music and just uh, this guy ivo papasov their approach to rhythm is just amazing and people dance to it it's in like 21 8 and everybody's grooving <laughs> 
So with Ishtar, I just wanted to dive into having that Eastern European general sound, but then having the entire thing continuously develop. So like at one point, there's a unison melody in the guitar and viola. It's about a minute long just to itself. And it's just one long melody that never really repeats. And it just culminates in this really rapid fire stuff at the end and then goes into a violin solo.
let's talk, I guess, about the bass solo first. This is the thing that starts it off. It's about a minute and a half long just by itself. So it's so bass intensive. And what I mean by this, as an upright bass player myself, you've got double stops and things, which obviously you have to be very familiar with the instrument. Or is it just because you're familiar with guitar, you can see what is possible in terms of double stopping just by playing the bottom strings of your guitar? I studied in school a lot of composition and composition technique stuff. I went to Indiana University for music and for religious studies. And I ended up leaving because at one point I realized I was learning a lot more by playing jazz live. But since then, it kind of continued studying composition. And so I have a pretty decent knowledge of what instruments are capable of and what double stops work, which ones basically wouldn't, which ones are uncomfortable, uncomfortable, that kind of thing. Or how you can just spiral into a harmonic in a particular spot. Yeah, he just nails those, doesn't he? I mean, yes, yes. It just, it, you know, it reminds me of some of the heavy metal guitarists that are playing and then they can just put these little harmonic notes because it's just a technique that you're using with your right hand. But you can't do that on bass. You just have to know where it is. Right. And jump. It's a huge jump for him. The guy's amazing. So to what extent when you're working with a solo like that, is every little detail of it notated or is some of it directing him that you're working one-on-one? Okay, make that part move a little faster. Are you doing that kind of directorial stuff or are you kind of leaving it in his hands? A little bit of both. The whole thing is written out, but how he approaches stuff, I just kind of left up to him. Like some of the pauses and just some of the tempo shifts in it, you know, mm-hmm. I just let him do as, as it is comfortable to him. Well, it seems pretty rare to find classical players who are as comfortable, I don't want to say in a jazz idiom, because these are all written parts, even the crazy violin solo. It's amazing to me <laughs> that one can have the patience to, when there's so many notes in some of these <laughs> runs. The violin solo in Ishtar is improvised. Oh, okay. Well, that was my question. Yeah, okay. So you find these people who play with orchestras, but yet also, I guess we are at the time in history where it's not like the orchestra players are the pre-rock old people. Like, we're all... <laughs> <laughs> we all existed through the 60s in some form. Yeah, Glenn is the violinist, and he is an amazing improviser. Absolutely amazing. He's actually really good at playing Indian-style stuff. Uh-huh. He's got perfect pitch, and he's just got amazing ears. So he can dial in all these microtonal flourishes and stuff. When we play live, he's like the secret weapon. Let's like let him loose every once in a while, and the crowd was enthralled, you know? Because <laughs> his chops are ridiculous. To end the bass solo, how did you even picture in your head how that's going to sound before you actually get, in order to write the whole damn thing out. Right. Well, that part, I just told everybody, you know, everybody just jump on a D anywhere and make some noise, you know? (laughs) Okay. It's not strictly, you've got your guitar part and you're just writing out what you want everybody else to do and using them as your little puppets. There's a more interactive... In other pieces, there'll be like eight bars of group improvisation, but only eight, right? So we could kind of jump from one written part to another written part through eight bars of what's going to happen. Uh-huh. It keeps it exciting. But obviously you write the head. Oh yeah, the bass part's written out. All right, so that main... Where does that come from in terms of your being into Bulgarian music? How are you investigating other types of music like this? I played it in a group with this woman, Jessica Lurie, and she really influenced me a lot in terms of composition because she just writes amazing music. And So I was a guitarist in her group. This is years ago. And we, you know, did a little bit of touring and did some stuff. And uh, she was really into Eastern European music because her husband is from Croatia. So that's how it all came to me. So I ended up listening to stuff through her and then kind of explored stuff on my own. But I'd always, even back when I was in school, I'd always loved harmonic minor, that like augmented second leap, you know, from the flat 
six to the the major seven and the minor scale and i just love that for some reason and for me like compositionally that little extended augmented second really pulls things around melodically i find it easy to write melodies in it you know i always wonder when when i hear ethnic influences in people's music you know to what extent obviously there are lots of people that play in semi-purist bands of a certain sort they probably know somebody or you know had parents or something from that area and they're really paying attention to that but then a lot of like you know our first interview i did for this podcast was with guys from camper van beethoven which is a famously eclectic like not that they are super educated in these things it's just you get these ideas in your head often from cartoons you know sure. just just things that you know the basic feel of that scale that you're talking about and get that into your imagination and then apply whatever sensibility rock sensibility or whatever to it and yes you can spin out a melody i would think it would be easier to do that and feel like you're coming up with something that is exciting and original than if you really were thoroughly educated in the form and then like you either feel like oh i'm doing the traditional thing you know it doesn't feel as exotic and yeah no you're totally right yeah you don't get pulled into certain expectations you can just kind of go for it so in this song you've got that part but then the chorus here the b section Mm -hmm. it's got this much more spanishy feel yeah. Again, is there any justification for that juxtaposition in their traditions themselves, or it's just that similar kinds of scales, similar kinds of feels, and so it's a natural movement between them for your own imagination? Yeah, that's what it is. For me, I always feel like in writing stuff, as you develop an idea, there's like 10,000 really shitty choices that you can make, mm-hmm. and then like 10 good ones, and then like two really great ones. So I always just try to surf the really great ones if I can, from moment to moment. So wherever that leads is just wherever it leads. It seems like it's so much of the stuff when I listen to it as you know, my own music and try to be objective. Elements of tango always creep in. <laughs> like the tango is just... I've listened to so much Piazzolla. I love Astro Piazzolla and a bunch of different tango stuff. So I think it's inevitable. But yeah, I thought I saw you had on YouTube some like what five tangos in four minutes. Oh yeah, that was a string quintet. Yeah. So to what extent? I, I know we're just talking about ones that are your bands, and you've got five albums, I guess, of your band stuff. But then you've also got a certain amount of output just that you've written for string quintet or I saw even a straight bass quartet. You're very in love with the upright bass. What role do these play in terms of your overall career, your output, your creative, what drives you to do a thing from, I'm going to work on a string quartet thing right now. Is it just that you get an opportunity that you're working with these people and you want to give them something or is it more internal than that like i think i need to really try something that i don't play guitar on or a lot of times it's just opportunity the people either ask me for something that's how the bass quartet came about dan asked me to write one well like the thing the five tangos and three movements i was at a girlfriend's house having dinner with her family and everybody was inebriated and there's a ton of people and I wasn't doing much talking, and I just had this little melody in my head. And I kept developing it in my head as I sat there silently with everybody else talking around me. <laughs> and that eventually became the tango thing. So I don't know. I guess it can come from anywhere. So apply that to Ishtar, though. You've got a few different distinct sections in here. Is it that the initial and then the B section sort of just develops out of that? Or were these juxtaposed from separate ideas? No, it all develops out of one continuous kind of flow. Like a lot of this stuff, I'll sit down and write as much of it as I can in one sitting. Mm -hmm. So for Ishtar, I just pretty much sat down and wrote the whole thing. And it took a really long time, but I can kind of get in the zone and do it for hours. 
and be pretty content for whatever reason. That's really relaxing for me. So what makes you, I see about four minutes and you get an actual guitar solo. Is that just, it's time to add something else. We've been going on along and we might as well change up the texture and have a guitar solo. Or is it just your guitar specific idea? Do you generally write on guitar or on keyboard when you're writing the string parts? Yeah, back and forth between the two or sometimes just to paper. I can write pretty accurately just from my head. It just kind of depends, just imagining it. And I use a notation program, Sibelius, which is a god save because, man, back in the day before that when I would write out horn parts for bands and stuff and have to do it all by hand, it took forever. And then you got to transpose stuff for the horns and inevitably end up screwing up. <laughs> so you have this sudden run of horns a major second apart. <laughs> Oops. So when you're doing that and then you get to a guitar solo section, are you notating the guitar solo in the same way, even though it's going to be you that's playing it just so you can remember what you want to do? That's just improvised. Okay. That guitar solo is just different every time. But there's some guitar solos that are written out, like in that song Mammoth. So the Spanishy stuff here sounds very, you always play a steel string or is this a nylon here? That's steel string. Okay. So you're just doing the tremolo sort of thing that you normally would get from flicking your fingers on the nylon in that that makes it sound particularly Spanishy. Yeah, I can just do that on steel string too. The thump. You're finger picking throughout? For the most part, yeah. I don't use a pick too much. Sometimes. Just because it tends to restrict in terms of hitting the high and the low notes and doing the combinations you want? It just feels to me like, you know, I use my pinky too, and I've got nails, so it's like I have five picks instead of one. All right. Actually dedicated to preserve a long pinky nail (laughs) through your regular life and not smash it on things. I get made fun of for this stuff. Because sometimes if I break one and I have a show coming up, I have to use a fake nail. It's just funny. Well, you should just, if if you're going to call attention to yourself that way anyway, you should just color each one a different color. Just on that one hand. (laughs) A little bit of glitter. (laughs) (laughs) I like the ending of Ishtar here. It sounds like it's ending that you fake everybody out. Yeah. It seems like such a different experience orchestrating something like this, especially a little trick like that where it's like you're setting a little trap, but you're having to do it by filling out blueprints in your home before you take it to the engineers and have it put together, (laughs) that it's much different than if you're playing in a jazz ensemble or something. Hey, let's do this thing for a tricky ending. And then you produce it out of your guitar and then everybody says, oh, that's a good idea. You know, you could work that kind of thing out in a matter of three minutes. Or does it feel just as satisfying because you've just gotten good enough at the notation that you can kind of picture it enough. And plus, in Sibelius, it actually played back, I assume. Yeah, it's really nice, actually, for that. You get the instant feedback that way. It's not truly... Right at the end of Ishtar, it goes to this B diminished chord, and that's just like another spot where, okay, here's a diminished chord. Everybody stay in this diminished scale, the half-step first scale, and go for it. And then we'll just make some noise, and then it goes into the more structured ending. If we're going to talk music theory-ish, I had one part labeled what I call the Batman section, where duh, duh, <laughs> that's what the background is doing. Can you say a little about the sequence of how you get out of that initial section back into the main one where the chords spin around a few times? just kind of taking a scenic detour you know (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) 
to what extent is that just trying different stuff or is it a music theory trick? Do you know where you're going before you actually write it? No, you know, it is that thing of trying to make the right decisions in terms of the writing and staying on like the best ideas. You can have so many ideas and so many of them just horrible, you know? <laughs> so actually staying with a good one is the hard part. And sometimes it just leads into weird directions. And sometimes it's a total disaster. <laughs> like you just come to a screeching halt. Yeah. I mean, what makes you decide, again, I'm sure this is going to be hard. It's just the inertia of the thing while you're actually writing it. When to stop something like this, that you could have easily had very coherent thing and even have all the elements in here and have it stop by five minutes. You just think, we really need to get it crazy here and I need a good three <laughs> minutes to thresh that out. No, I mean, it's just like it's a continuous development. At some point, it just seems like, okay, now it's done. But it has to get there. There's momentum in its development, right? Mm-hmm. And as that momentum continues, it kind of veers off and goes in different directions. And then eventually you can kind of feel the end approaching. But I mean, it could be something like that where the corners meet song is like three minutes long, boom, done. And no improv, no anything. Well, like one thing that we're going to go record soon is I did my own kind of jazz infused and kind of prog rock infused a little bit take on the fourth Brandenburg concerto of Bach. Okay. So we're going to record this soon. It's going to be really fun, man. But that is like epic. It's like 20 minutes. (laughs) So you said you write as much of this at a time. However, Mm -hmm. with something as long as Ishtar, what chunk of it actually was from that first burst? And what did you then have to go back and let's add another couple sections here? Yeah. Oh, no, it was all one thing. Okay. There'll be things I'll go back and do in terms of like string effects or something like this effect called Ponticello that I love. To work on those transitions. Yeah, yeah. But musically, all the notes are there. I mean, have there been pieces like this where you've done this and then you just chop out the middle part or something? Yeah, there's this tune. Years ago, I was in Poland. We had done some concerts. We did one at this place called the Harris Jazz Club in Krakow. And I was on a train and just came up with this little melody that made me think of Krakow. At first, it was this little melody. Now, this thing has become this monster. <laughs> years later, like I just keep adding stuff to it, you know? So that's definitely different than Ishtar. Because over time, over the years, there's, there's so many different versions of this damn thing that I don't even know. Like when we get together to rehearse, if we're going to play it in a concert, it's very possible that everybody comes with a different part. <laughs> you know? Like we realize in rehearsal, oh shit, you know, we have the five different versions of this song we're trying to play. It's not going to work. So I've got to go and print out the version we're going to do for that concert. But that crack has just become epic. <laughs> Let's switch over to one of these newer projects. So the, your last full album was 2013. You said Any Night Now. This is from 2014 at some point, right? Not the same ensemble. You've got a regular jazz band set up seemingly right here. Say something about how this came together versus, I would think with these things with the Chicago Symphony and Milwaukee Orchestra players that you're paying them by the session. So it's not like we just get together every week or is it more social like that? We just get together. Okay. So you've just gotten the cred that this is a welcome release for them and not get another gig. They just really enjoy playing this stuff. It's nice. And we're all friends. How does that compare with what is this unit that's playing the Any Night Now here? Yeah, that's different. I basically hired people for that. So this is a one-off recording or this is part of a ongoing performance lineup? Well, I mean, it's a one-off recording with that specific group of people. Yeah. Mm. The horn players I work with a lot and I've known for a long time. The piano player is a good friend. She's incredible. She's probably one of the best musicians I've ever met in my life, Amy Briggs. And then the bass player and the drummer, I really didn't know very well. I just knew of them. And they're both great, Clay Schaub and uh, Devin Dropka on drums. So yeah, it was just kind of throwing people together. Here's this windy little tune, and kind of like chamber jazz. 
Yeah, sort of a more traditional, at least, you know, as somebody who's familiar with the 1950s Miles Davis, the uh, sketches of Spain era. Anything else you want to say to introduce the song? I just wanted to have something that had a very much a jazz element to it, but develops ideas compositionally, piece by piece by piece, as it goes, and kind of hands things off. You know, the melody gets handed around a lot in that. And, you know, it starts, there's that whole little guitar intro, and then later the piano's playing it toward the end. So there's improvisation in it, but there's also a lot of written out parts. So really it's like a chamber jazz kind of affair. Like the trumpet part, the flugelhorn part in that is written out. It sounds like a solo, but it's not. That's why there's all these counterpoint lines underneath it happening, you know, that lock up with it. But the saxophone solo is improvised. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking in terms of the Sketches of Spain comparison. So this Miles Davis, when he's playing with the Gil Evans Orchestra, that I'm not exactly sure what the techniques they used at the time, but it at least sounds to me like, even though, of course, he's one of the amazing improvisational trumpeters, the complicated orchestrations lock up enough with the individual trumpet lines on the top that obviously either it was written out or he laid it down first, you know, or said, this is approximately what I'm playing, and then... Gil Evans could sweep in and write all this other stuff going under it. Yeah, I love that. Getting people together that are willing to do that kind of stuff can be a little difficult. For so many years, I played jazz and just like improv, 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 nonstop improv, you know. And after a while, I just got kind of like improved out, you know. <laughs> so is the trumpet guy here, like, is he one of the orchestra guys or is he just another jazz guy? No, he's a, a jazz guy from jazz around town. Okay. Yeah, he's amazing. Jamie Brevik, really, really talented. A nice group of people.
say something about how you orchestrate this versus other stuff. I mean, I've played in jazz band. I'm kind of familiar with the way these things tend to be orchestrated, which is, and you can kind of hear, I guess I didn't know before you said that the trumpet solo was not an actual solo, but you can hear obviously when the horns are doing things together, that's a written part. But in terms of like the bass and the drums, is it that you've just got the chords there and this is the feel and that's the standard way of charting rather than writing things out? Certainly not writing out a a drum kit part. It's like one of the most tedious possible things. It is. It's really tedious. When I have a drummer, it's more like suggestions and I'll give them specific, like they'll get a chopped up version of what's happening. Like here's the trumpet line during this solo, you know, in this case, like I said, it's written out. So he would have that part in front of him so he could see what was happening and react to it. But the bass part, most of that is written out. But uh, for the drums, I always just kind of give them suggestions. I find playing with drummers really difficult because they have to have a certain intuitive sense that's dialed in. Like in that Elixir Ensemble group, I worked with this guy, Sam Monroe, who's an amazing drummer. And he and I really developed almost an entire language of how to approach stuff. Because I really, writing out drum parts is just almost impossible for me. (laughs) So this was still played with the whole group together, right? This yeah, that's not, all okay. Like. This is not drum and bass first and layer stuff no. on. Okay. Do you ever record like that, even just to kind of construct a song? Yeah. Some of the Elixir Ensemble stuff has, has been like that. And when you do that, is it because you're constructing the song that way, or is it because it's just easy to record that way because people screw up and it's, you might as well get the drums, but you've already sort of rehearsed it as a full group? Right. It's usually that. And you want to get stuff really well isolated and everything, depending where you're recording. So there's no bleed between stuff. Like just lay down the bass and drums and guitar first, say, on something. And then bring the horns in so that when you're mixing it, you can really maneuver them. And they're not coming through the mics of the drum set and stuff. What about with Any Night Now? How isolated are the various things? Did you get a really sophisticated studio with good shielding and so you could keep the drum mics away from everything else? Or is it more of a live? It was live. Put a couple mics in the middle of the room kind of thing. Everybody was mic'd, but it was live and we were just in a room. So that's just a single run through. But you can still bring up the kick drum later. Yeah. Okay, it's all separate tracks. So what was this for? You said this is not a part of your a touring band at the time. What motivated the creation of this particular... Was it just you'd written this thing and you wanted to get it out and so you got this group together or did you have a specific venue that this was aimed at? I've been wanting to put together an actual chamber jazz group and that was essentially like putting together some material so I'd have something... So when I do approach other players, I can say, okay, here's some of the material and then play the stuff live which has happened a little bit. I'd like to do it more. So that was really the main motivation for that. And getting it out. You know, I like having stuff I can kind of toss up on the web or whatever. (laughs) Sure. But since you haven't enshrined it in an album, is it a kind of thing like, well, this might be the final version, or it might be after I get the band that I've played together with for a while. You know, we're already set up for another song. We might as well take another shot at this. And if it's better... Yeah, I'm going to do that at some point. It's just a matter of of getting people together and money and time. Okay. So on YouTube, you've got, with that Loki song you mentioned, you've got multiple versions of that floating out there. Given the way that you write and that any group of people that you get together and give this music to could then produce a version of it, is that an issue where you, I don't know which performance is the the definitive one. There is no definitive one. It's all, the, the definitive thing, it really is the sheet music. Yeah, that's really how it is. Whatever recording you get put the most money into. Right, yeah, yeah. Might not be the best performance, but that's the one that they have the nice mics. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, people end up doing their own, like, okay, well, Dan, the bass player, is going to New York and he's going to play 
in the gallery for piano and bass instead of guitar and bass, mm-hmm. and where the corners meet with a group there. As the Chicago Symphony is tours every year, they have little chamber ensembles that go into the communities that they're playing in and put on smaller concerts. So they've played a bunch of my stuff, like tango-esque and some other stuff, which is pretty cool, you know? Like, I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very gratifying that somebody, when people pick up your stuff and the fact that it is portable in this way, that you've got the sheet music. Well, and of course, Dan, like, having played with you and having that experience that he can then direct a performance of it, which it sounds have all the times when a string quartet or somebody plays your stuff is that for the most part people that you've been working with personally or that you've worked with them in other contexts or has it just gotten out of your hands and you hear people in europe are doing your stuff mostly people that i've worked with but a couple times you know i've gotten somebody's recorded something and sent it to me i'm like oh wow hey cool thanks (laughs) i don't get paid for it or anything which i guess is not good Is it just the structure of the mechanisms of royalties and stuff? Don't unless it's like recorded and sold there, then right. it's just somebody doing a performance in a club and sharing it with you. And it makes me really happy to think that people doing that. It's really nice, and it's just cool knowing that people in like in the Canary Islands, believe it or not, have heard my music. Like, what the hell? <laughs> no, I've never been there. And Vienna and China. You, know? and you think that's largely because of the normal iTunes, Spotify, etc., or is it more this network? of professional musicians that play your stuff and know other people and that's how it gets in their hands it's mostly the network yeah but you know dan is a big part of that just because the chicago symphony is such a successful institution you know yeah of course yeah so they go all over the world so luckily he's spread some of my work around which is nice. this actually made me look up whether my because i took lessons when i was a kid from roger klein who is still in the Chicago Symphony, apparently one of the bass players there. Oh, I, wow. I, That's great. Must be very old. I, <laughs> <laughs> I certainly know how the community of really good players in these orchestras seems fairly small compared to how do rock bands hook up with each other. Like, there are just so many of them in every single city that unless there's a particular, there's not a global network of people. Yeah. At, but if you're getting at this level of talent and it's people switching back and forth between the same orchestras, how does that work in terms of composers like you and somebody coming from outside with jazz chops and with guitar? And it's probably not going to be the guy sitting in front of the Chicago Symphony playing a guitar concerto. So how do you even hook up with these people in the first place? How do you get this reputation such that little groups are playing your stuff? Just over time, you know, word of mouth. You know, I wrote some string quartet music for somebody's wedding. And Glenn, the violinist in the Milwaukee Symphony, the improvised guy I was talking about, he happened to be in that and really liked the music. So we ended up talking. This was maybe 2004, so a while ago. And then just hooked up and playing some gigs together, doing some jazz stuff. And then eventually, you know, I just kind of say, hey, you know, I've got shelves and shelves and shelves of music. You want to to do some of it? So and eventually we put this group together, the string tech group. I originally came up with the string tet name because you know everybody's playing a string instrument, and at the time when we first started, it was never really solid how many people were in it. You know, it was always kind of changing, so I didn't have to have a number <laughs> attached, like the quartet or quintet or something. So, do you feel like your position here is that you are an associate hooking individually up with these? classical musicians or is there also a community of music school composer guys <laughs> that are trying to voice their stuff on these musicians and that you're in touch with some of them as well is that a thing <laughs> i have no idea what happened to anybody else that was i was in composition school with since i didn't graduate with a degree in that who my tas were i, I have no idea what's going on in that world at this point oh yeah other than they're all un- unemployed but 
and I'm just teaching in schools. Yeah, I've kept in touch with a couple of people. You know, I did the exact same thing. I was pretty tight with a guy at IU named David Baker. He's an amazing teacher, uh, jazz cellist, pretty interesting. And But he'd been a trombonist. I mean, he played with everybody, man. He played with Armstrong, and he played with George Russell, and played with uh, Eric Dolphy. And David died not too long ago. He was just a beautiful human being. When I first went to school and was playing jazz, you know, I hadn't been playing jazz for very long. I just kind of sucked. And he was just very kind to me and saw that I really wanted to know more, you know, and really wanted to get better. And it just took me a while, but he was really kind to me. Like, it's kind of nice in the philosophy world, my other podcast, that even the most famous philosophers are not really that famous as far as things go. So you could probably just email them and they'll just answer you. Like it's a normal, <laughs> you know, you could just go to their office hours and hit them up for something. Is that kind of the same thing with big time jazz and classical musicians that they're still not so swarmed with attention that they're just want nothing to do with you, you know, unless they're Yo-Yo Ma. Even Yo-Yo is, is pretty approachable. You <laughs> <know>? <laughs> have you approached him? <laughs> yeah, I have through other people. I mean, I've never actually been able to nail him down to like, all right, dude, here, I have a piece for guitar and cello, let's do it. But a good friend of mine, his wife studied with Yo-Yo for years. And then Yang Wei, who I work with, works with the Silk Road Ensemble which is Yo-Yo's kind of ethnic music collective. Okay, so I guess you can feel like if it's your song that you're introducing, then whatever the limits of your guitar playing, you're playing your song just fine. You don't have to feel like if you're just going in a jam session and then the jazz greats of the earth are playing opposite you, I can see how that would be completely intimidating and you'd feel like, no, yeah. I'm not like the guy that's concentrated on my guitar like Yingve Malmsteen or whatever that is, <laughs> yeah. you know, that the Yo-Yo Ma equivalent level on guitar, since there's so many guitarists like that in the world. But as the composer, you can have a little more confidence <laughs> I guess. I wrote it, but here it is. You know, getting classical players to improvise, like Glenn always has, but other people like are a little timid about it. And so I always just try to instill in them like what I call the golden rule of jazz, which is if you screw up and you play a terrible note, immediately do it again. Then people will just think, oh, you're playing outside, right? Oh. <laughs> I see. Not stop the song, but actually in context, just play it's just cool tonality yes well they probably get that they play early 20th century music which is called oh stravinsky is just mozart with the wrong notes played in different places like right yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's say a little more about any night now before we get on to mammoth it's funny when i was firing the stuff up in my house i was firing out the string tet like wow this is kind of a new exciting it doesn't sit comfortably in any particular genre whereas this any night now like people don't even hear the music itself that they're hearing the cultural associations of this kind of jazz and if they're not the kind of person who's listening to sketches of spain like i have then it's more like oh god what is this thing we've gone to jazz land now right <laughs> the train has stopped at jazz land i mean is that an advantage <laughs> that in that chamber jazz you know you can sell that to certain places and you know if people go to a jazz club this is the feel they expect and so like you're writing towards a genre is that a, just a fundamentally different experience in writing something like ishtar yeah it is because there is like a kind of marketing sense to it i mean with the string test stuff it is kind of just pure i guess in that sense like whatever comes out is what it's going to be and everybody's pretty much down with it i really haven't come up with anything where we've been rehearsing and everybody looks at me and just says hey this sucks well you can hear it back yourself on your computer before you give it to anyone you can tell or you know if it's the kind of thing it sounds like yeah if you've got these melodies sticking in your head that even though it's written it's still very hook oriented if i can say that you've got the advantage of that head but then also that you can 
then use your imagination, your music theory knowledge to work the transitions out in a satisfying way and make it worth being five minutes, eight minutes, as opposed to two and a half, (laughs) where you get it out, have the solo, get it out again. Sure. And have like a continuous narrative flow. Yes. So when you have that when you're harmonizing that with the beautiful is it it's a tenor and a berry right underneath the saxes and the trumpet So where is that particular harmony coming from? Again, is that just trying stuff? What mode are we in? Or can you say anything theory-wise about what's actually going on there? Whatever supports it best and gives it the most kind of like, it has such a sense of like kind of melancholy in that. And so trying to get it like, the harmony is to be somewhat dark, but still pretty. Yeah. So just going for that, however it works. You know, it's so funny. After I, I remember being young, and you know, I'd bang out some chords on the guitar, and I just put together whatever I liked, and didn't think about theory at all. Just here's one chord to another, and whatever. And then I go to school and do all this stuff, and I come to understand theory. And now I'm basically banging out chords and putting stuff together. <laughs> I've come kind of full circle, back to whatever works in the moment. And just having the retention tool of writing things out, which is just something that since I play in a more normal rock setup in terms of here's the thing I worked out, why don't you work out something? And if you want to have some detailed interaction like that, yeah, you know, you'd have to notate it or do something or it just gets lost by the next practice. You have no idea what was going on or it has to be so catchy. That... Right, exactly. Which means it usually has to be pretty short too. Yeah, and then how you piece in the arrangement here where then after that you've got the two saxes keep going, everything else drops out. I just thought that was an interesting gesture to get you toward the end there. Listen to what the Barry and the tenor are playing. They're basically playing the guitar part that began the song. Okay. If you listen to the guitar part, it almost sounds like two separate things, right? Like there's a bass part to it and a melody part and a little bit of chords. They're just taking those two parts. Let's get our third song out there. So this is, we're finally to the Jason Seed Elixir Ensemble from their second album in 2008. The song is Mammoth, which is a really fun one. I have written a a psychedelic Pachelbel's Canon. It was for the beginning. That's great. And then finally we hear you sing, which you did all over these Elixir albums, and then you've stopped now. What, what? Is that audience <laughs> feedback what? or just a change in your sentiments here over, over the years? And yeah, just change in focus. I sang in that project because I couldn't get anybody else to do it, you know? And I can sing okay for the most part because I love song formats. Just being able to put together things in verse, chorus, solo kind of stuff and just having more of a kind of rock sentimentality in terms of structure. This not being a good example of that, because I know some of the other songs actually start with a little funky riff, but this one, you've got the classical thing for the first minute or so, then you come in on a main funky thing, and then eventually by almost two minutes in, your vocal comes in. And you were saying this is more Zappa influence than anything else. So it's rock, but it's a kind of rock that was already influenced by a bunch of other things. Yeah. Seems Zappa is kind of the closest to your way of composing that I have heard about. In the sense that, like, any genre kind of goes, or in mixing stuff, like, 
Zappa had a pretty specific harmonic language setting. Yeah, you don't have enough fast uh, marimba here. You need... You need to... I need Ruth Underwood to just play the hell out of nonstop polyrhythms. <laughs> All right, well, let's play the song and we'll talk more.
All right, so talk more about these sections. What came first? Did the funky part come first? Did the intro come first? How did you write this one? The intro came first. Just this kind of harmonically vague and dark, ominous sounding thing. I just wanted to do some huge juxtaposition after that. So it kind of goes into the acoustic funk, (laughs) I guess you'd call it. Yeah, my son especially liked this one. It seems to have... I don't know if it's movie soundtracks or cartoons or whatever, but like the stuff with this kind of dark feel, again, we're maybe less listening to the, I don't know if this is an accurate description, but I'm trying it today, listening less to the music than to the cultural associations that this sounds like it could be. Well, I see you've actually done some movie soundtracks in the past few years. I have, yeah. Is that just repurposing other music that you've written? I haven't heard any of these music soundtrack things, or is it writing new things for that? Written specifically for the films, which was I love doing. It's super fun. Is that lucrative enough that that can be your main revenue stream now as compared to these other things? No, No. not really. I mean, if I was doing more of it, which I would love to do, and for whatever reason, I don't find it difficult. Like people give me, here's the visual stuff that's happening. And then just putting music to it doesn't, I guess I have a fairly easy time doing it. Of course, now that I said that, I probably curse myself, but I enjoy doing it. It's fun. Which it seems like it's rare these days. I know you still write your stuff on a computer, but are you even tempted to, oh, let's just take my Sibelius file and output it to whatever MIDI program that will then con- you know, convert what I have into, I can then not just get a small ensemble, but I can tie a giant, well, sampled orchestra to it. Is that sure. something you've done in more in when you're doing movie compositions or do you still pursue basically the same methods of putting stuff together in terms of getting an ensemble together and knocking it out? I like getting the ensemble together and knocking it out because I think, you know, so many of the aspects that make music cool are often little variations in things and even little mistakes, you know, in rhythm or, you know, that really kind of give it life. Like some of Zappa's Synclavier stuff, like the album Jazz from Hell that he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's cool and it's interesting. But it's also just this very cold and dry stuff. Well, yeah, a lot of that has to do with just the difference between the technology that they had in electronic realm for having expressivity for folks. The Sean Beeson one I just posted where he uses the mouth controller for every single line. So he's actually playing, you know, the cello with his mouth. Oh, weird. Oh, that's great. (laughs) So put another thousand dollars in your equipment. Maybe you, (laughs) but he was saying how much you would like to bring in more ensemble players as well. So the fact that you have these great musicians at your beck and call and actually know how to write to them seems like a better deal. It definitely is. And it's just fun to get everybody together and hang out. I just did a rehearsal with Dan and Marianne, this piano player that we've been working with. And I recorded the rehearsal and just listening back to it is hilarious. The things that we say to each other in between stuff are just so ridiculous. (laughs) In terms of trying to communicate what you want with the next section? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Where everybody, you know, should I hit that A? Like, A? No, no, no. Hit more. With a little more of an angle and just stupid (laughs) abstractions, you know, that make no sense at all. I'd like to, like, at some point, just record some rehearsals, take all of those and make some kind of little sound collage of us talking total nonsense. (laughs) But somehow it communicates vibe. I would say that, you know, it just takes time to then develop the language, but it almost seems more like it depends on the player, that just different players I've played with, that some of them I can just, can you just do more and they'll just play something that approximates that and some other players like it doesn't matter how many years i played with them like i can't do that 
have to be some other language or let it come out of them, just a fundamental block. Right. And that I would think would be part of the skill that would make a classical player either somebody that you could work with that can bend his or her considerable talents to not just improvising, but doing the sort of subtleties that you want to come out of their soul as opposed to somebody else that's just going to be more straight. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else about this in particular? How do you write lyrics? Do you write them last? Last. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got the melody and then just like what can possibly... What applies. I have no idea where the whole mammoth thing came from. I just remember coming up with it in the car, listening back to my own. I played some of this just guitar and then had the overdubbed the, the melody line on another guitar and then just trying to apply lyrics to it and coming up with this kind of barely sense-making stuff about a mammoth. <laughs> well, it is a little creepy that a mammoth might teach you that you better learn to love right now. <laughs> I'm not sure how the mechanics of that would work, but by threat, by... <laughs> More by, like, extinction. Okay, all right. Well, that, that actually makes sense. Um... <laughs> That's what I had in mind anyway. Lyrics are, are so... I always loved uh, a lot of the lyrics that John Anderson did in Yes, because it seems like the person listening to it is going to bring their interpretation. And that's what it's more about. Sure. As opposed to Zappa's exact lyrics, which right. <laughs> are seldom <laughs> obscure enough to lend to that. No. Yeah. Very, very pointed. Like, especially his stuff in the 80s, like cocaine decisions and stuff like that. I often think of that kind of stuff as theater music, like that it's sort of meant to be listened to once and get the message and everything is presented. Whereas some of his earlier stuff, the more instrumental King Kong, these instrumentals that I can't even get in my head till I've listened to it several times. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of more what I feel like your music is, that it's got these hooks. But then if I want to come away with it, then more than just doon, doon. Then I have to, you know, listen to it enough and kind of see, actually look at the structure and how long it, I don't know, for me, at least that helps it to actually sink in. Whereas, I don't know, is that just, it seems like a big prejudice of the culture that you'd be running into that instrumental music is largely regarded as this is the background either for a movie. Mm -hmm. So you're paying attention to what's going on the screen. It's just, it's making you feel something. It doesn't matter what the structure of it is. It just kind of matter what the raw sound of it is at that moment and what the tonal space that it has created or just something that's like, even in a jazz club, the idea that it's in the background or I don't know. It can be frustrating, you know? <laughs> like people just to have this immediate association of instrumental music as background stuff. It's weird. It's just funny. In Seattle, I played this poetry slam every week and I was kind of like, ended up being the person to put together the band for the poetry slam every week. And one time we're playing and we played through, I remember it was Bemsha Swing, the Thelonious Monk tune. It was just an organist, a drummer, and me, right? Oh. On guitar. And it just went beautifully, right? Like it just every Everything flowed perfectly. We all looked at each other like, wow, that was really great. And the poets who were talking the whole time didn't even clap when we were done. <laughs> I got totally pissed off. And I had this drink. I just drank down the rest of it and whipped the ice into the audience. <laughs> okay. And everybody oh, kind of got shocked by it. But So you lived in Seattle. So were you good enough at orchestration at the time that you felt like it seems like a natural career path to someone, in addition to doing your own music, is to like try to hook on to Jane's addiction or whoever it is and like, I'll write your string parts. You know, I can do that. I can do it fast and get paid more for doing that than anything. Have you done any of that with other people's music or it seems like nothing that you pointed at me at is in that category? 
I really haven't. I've been asked to a couple times, and then for whatever reason, it ended up falling through. One time I got asked to write string quartet parts to kind of go with this rock band thing, but then some guy came in with a Mellotron and just laid stuff down. They said, okay, we don't need it anymore. Oh, I lost the gig to a Mellotron. Can you believe <laughs> <laughs> I guess Mellotron is just as exotic as, at this point. It's a real Mellotron? It wasn't a, yeah, a synth yeah. Mellotron? Okay. Pretty funny. I think I'll install that Mellotron patch on my... Right, exactly. Like, you don't need one of those things that breaks down all the time. Um, right, yeah. Geez, so any other summarial words about... We've talked about... You've given me a, a few flashes. So what year were you in at Indiana there? Uh, in the 90s. Okay. 96... 97, 98. All right. So what were you doing? You're playing in other people's bands between that point and here, or how are you developing yourself as an orchestrator? Back then, I was just playing jazz as a guitarist, kind of guitar for hire guy. Did that for a while. And, you know, ended up going out to Portland and doing it there, and then also in Seattle. And then I, I just burned out on doing guitar player guy thing right and getting hired to do different projects i mean some were great like the jessica lurie woman i mentioned Mm -hmm. i learned a lot in her group and she's wonderful composer and and musician and playing with different groups of people and doing different stuff like i did a thing with trey gunn one time that was just this improvised thing that we did with this drummer it was actually kind of a disaster it was pretty funny but i really just wanted to do more composition, which I was doing, but always in a jazz setting, just because that's the only thing I could apply it to and actually get the stuff played, which was always just, here's a a melody with some chords, let's play through it, and then everybody improvise, and then we'll come back and play the melody over the chords, and we're done. After a while, like, Jesus, I need more structure. (laughs) So was there an intermediate stop before the Elixir Ensemble, which I see those albums are 2007, 2008. What was the first album? I haven't actually heard that. The very first one's called Delusions. The entire album was done in a single day in the choral room of a, a middle school. <laughs> with classical musicians, or who are you playing with? With jazz guys. Okay. We played South by Southwest and did a, a number of different stuff. As the Jason Seed Entet, was that, that what that was called? No, that was the Elixir Ensemble for the... Yeah, okay, that was still you. All right. The Entet is more like the jazz project. I just like having the N so I don't have to, again, give it a number. <laughs> it's just lazy. It sounds better than the X-Tet. So, it yeah. does. It does. <laughs> And uh, getting everybody down to Austin for South by Southwest from Milwaukee was absolutely hilarious, man. It was an ongoing train wreck the entire time. But we managed to do it and played well and stuff. But How big was the band at that time? Seven people. The Elixir Ensemble topped out at 13 at one point. We, had, <laughs> we did a concert in Milwaukee in this place, Shank Hall. It had 13 musicians on stage. It was great. So you mix horns and strings in that. So you were saying mm-hmm. the challenges of the different languages that those people speak. Yeah. The way they approach rhythm, it's really interesting. Classical players always approach rhythm very on top of it. And jazz players always had more laid back in the pocket kind of feel. So a couple of the songs you were sending me were, you know, you've got something that kind of sounds like what would be a horn line in an R&B group, but you've got one horn and two strings or something on it. Any particular challenges in orchestrating? It seems like you don't have as many models to go on. I mean, was there some other groups that you played with or had heard that mixed horns and strings in this way that you felt like you were using them as a blueprint? No, actually, now that I think about it. You know, I had the people available, so it's just like, let's just go for it. (laughs) And how does it work in terms of stage volume? I was wondering about this. Like in Mammoth, Mm -hmm. toward the end, about four minutes in, the strings are doing some stuff, and the upright bass sort of takes a lead role, is the thing that you're hearing most. 
how would that even possibly work on stage? <laughs> how would you just everybody listen for the bass? You just gotta they have to manually adjust just like you would an orchestra? A little. You know, we just did our best. <laughs> like a lot of times with that group in particular, I always just wished I had a dedicated sound guy who I could take with us who really knew the music. So is that one of the reasons that you got rid of having drums on stage is just because I would think that would really put a damper in, you know, you've got individual string quartet players. It's not a group of strings that you're, it's not ELO or whatever, where you've got a, <laughs> the Elton John touring show. It's a couple guys who are sawing very hard, but are not going to compete even with a horn player. That seems like vastly out of balance that you don't have a sax against a viola. How does that possibly work? Yeah. You got to mic everybody. And then the, you know, <sighs> I remember the first time Helen, the violist, we played a place in Chicago called Martyrs. It was one of the first times I think that she had played with the group. She had never played with monitors. She had no idea. So at one point, at Martyrs, the sound guy is all the way across the room, right? He's not next to the stage. He's literally at the other end of the hall. So he would talk to you through the monitors to let you know what he wants. At one point, she's playing and she stops and he says through the monitors, can I get some more viola? And she looks around like, what? Where did that come from? And you know, so she starts playing. She stops again. And finally she looks at me and said, Jason, where is that voice coming from? And I just remember being so tempted to say, what voice? You know? <laughs> oh, God, it was great. My point here is simply that these people not only play in different worlds, they have different exposure to things like monitors and microphones sure. and have no idea in some cases what to do when the microphone's pointed at them. It's definitely difficult. That's why I like it. If I'd been able to have a dedicated sound guy for that stuff, it would have been wonderful. All right. So getting somebody like that to like stay the proper distance from the microphone, or I'm sure they're not going to already have an electric pickup on their violin or something, a certain amount of learning curve. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Let's get into our final song that we're just going to introduce. So I had picked Pinch. You had a couple versions of this posted. One of them had a, was the instrument <laughs> that we're not going to hear now? Oh, Pipa. The Pipa. So, yeah, he's on Where the Corners Meet. Okay. He's amazing. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. But this one is the string tad. So it's just, it's from the first of the two albums, the 2001, the Escapist album. I wanted represented somehow here, and this is kind of one of the catchiest tunes on there. Any particular introductory words about Pinch? It has a really good groove to it. Yeah. Although I really have always used odd meters, you know, in different combinations of meter. So it's got a cool groove. And I think if I remember correctly, it's basically an 11, like six and five. Well, and there's another one I could just easily see in some wacky movie somewhere. Yeah, I totally agree. A lot of this stuff, I think, has cinematic potential. And people always tell me that about, about a lot of the music. I think, you know, I remember being a kid, being absolutely enthralled with the music from the cartoons, like the Carl Stalling stuff. Well, that's how most of us got classical music at all. Yeah. <laughs> right. And just closing my eyes and not even watching the cartoon and just listening to the music and thinking, this music is completely insane. Because <laughs> you know? it's like just following the cartoon, you know. But if you don't watch the cartoon, it's, it's awesome just on its own. I've asked you about your temptation of electronics, but what about the temptation of, have you written any larger orchestra stuff? Oh, yeah. Okay. I had one piece played, I mean, it was for 16 people by a group called Present Music in Milwaukee. That was really fun. I got to work with this piano player who's just absolutely incredible. His name's Philip Bush. He plays in Steve Reich's group with Philip Glass's group. 
Serious badass. All right. So it's just, there's less opportunities to actually get that kind of thing performed. So that would be less. <laughs> Way less. Yeah. You know, sometimes like I, I would love to write some orchestral music, but the odds of getting it played are so small. It's like, you only need to play it once. Just get a good recording. There you go. There's your, your album or your, <laughs> your pitch to another skill set to uh, advertise your prowess on for the, the movie industry or whatever. Sure. I really do prefer writing for smaller ensembles just because you can hear the individual things. You know? Well, and you get to be in it in, a, in an effective, audible way. <laughs> I'll bring my guitar on stage with 40 string players around me. Like, there's not a lot of... Why even, you know, you'd basically be the director who happens to have an instrument in your hand if you're in that situation. So, yeah, yeah it seems like you get the best of multiple worlds here with your hybrid setup. I'm surprised more people don't do this, but I guess most people don't know how to do all the things you know how to do. So Yeah, it's just developed over time, too, applying to what's available. So it's kind of an uh, organic skill set, I guess. Well, thanks so much. I thank you. I absolutely love a partially examined life, by the way. Awesome. Have a cool rest of your day, and here is Pinch. Thank you.
thanks so much to Jason Seed. Again, go to jasonseedmusic.com to learn more. As should be evident, these string players are really furiously sawing away. I would definitely recommend you check out one of the video performances from the band. I will link to some of those from the blog post associated with this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I encourage you to please go there, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and also find the Nakedly Examined Music Facebook page. In fact, if you like this experimental, post-classical stuff that Jason produces, you will enjoy I just put up a link there to an old discussion by my other podcast, The Partially Examined Life, about avant-garde art and Arthur Danto. That is an episode that is now behind our firewall for paid subscribers only, so that will be up there only for a limited time. Please go and like that Facebook page. I should also mention this is part of the Partially Examined Life family. You'll see that my website is part of that larger website. It is one and the same financial entity, and we definitely accept donations. If you're interested in supporting what I'm doing here, you can make very small donations via Patreon, where there's a $5 a month option at partiallyexaminedlife.com that will get you a bunch of bonus audio, including more discussions of aesthetics. Now, if you're the kind of person who is disturbed by the election, diving into some great music is a perfect way to escape all that. And I hope you'll reach out to me with any feedback or to suggest further guests at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off.